And welcome everyone to this edition of the 65 Years of Our Huddle Includes Everyone podcast series. On this edition, we got a really interesting guest, a guy that's kind of worn uh, almost every hat possible in the Ottawa region in terms of uh, in terms of football. I mean, this is a guy who's played Nakafa, ref Nakafa, coach Nakafa, is deemed by the CFL a super fan. Um, has been coach of the year, has played semi-pro with the bootleggers. I mean, he's seen it all. Our guest coming up is Jimmy Fada, or some of you might know him as the legendary Zipper Face. Anyways, Jimmy Fada coming up right after the break. And I think Jimmy's just jumped on the line with us. Jimmy, can you hear me okay? Yep, hear you just fine. Awesome. Well, Jimmy, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to join us today. How are things on your end? Oh, glad to be here. Uh, things are good. Just feel like uh, Bill Murray and Groundhog Day. It's the same thing over and over until we're out of this uh, pandemic, but we've got to hang in there. You know what? That's a good way to describe it. It is <laughs> Groundhog Day, man. Like This is like a, <laughs> under the circumstances, how are you doing? But that seems to have been the question now for, uh, oh, I don't know, we're going on uh, almost 400 days of that, so... Anyways, we won't we won't worry about that or down with that. We'll just uh, take advantage of a little bit of downtime here to talk a little bit of football. Really glad you could jump on with us today, bud. Glad to be here. Cool. Well, to jump right in, uh, I gave at the beginning. I gave the the listeners a little background as to uh, the Jimmy Fada file, if you will, or the Jimmy Fada star- story. But uh, I'll kind of ask you, how did you get uh, get your start with uh, this great sport of football? What was your your origins in the game? Um, it was a long time ago, many moons ago, I guess, when I was at that uh, age uh, level of uh, mosquito, um, because um, at the age of 12, I mean, I, I believed I was the same size uh, as I am now. I was a big kid, and I didn't realize this until uh, one of my uh, parents' family friends saying, uh, Jimmy, uh, how come you're not playing football? You ever thought of playing football? And I never really even thought of it, so... I signed up with the uh, South Gloucester uh, Dolphins, so definitely dating myself there. And had no idea what football was about, so they saw the size of me and they throw me on the uh, O-line as a uh, offensive guard and uh, went from Mosquito to Pee Wee, and I kept following the same group, just like it is now, the same, you make friends and you're the same age and you work through the ranks and uh, played uh all the levels of the South uh, Gloucester Dolphins. And I was part of the, uh, the uh, Gloucester Dukes at the, at the midget level, which was a, a new team to in CAFA. And that's where I met uh, one of my coaches, Bear, Barry Hawley. And uh, he, uh, he's the one I think that affected me the most, the way he looked after uh, his players. Um, he was a not a tough man, but he, he used tough love, but not to the point where he was a yeller and screamer and, you know, grabbing your face mask and screaming at you. Not one of those coaches, but but he really looked after the players. Like, uh, it was like his, uh, not hobby, but uh, he wasn't shy on, you know, renting us uh, buses and driving down to Toronto and the hotels and everything. So it was a, a really good experience. Um, and then I went from the... Um, the Dukes uh, to the Sooners played a few years in the Sooners and uh, progressed to the, uh, the Ottawa bootleggers. And uh, I tell you, that was, uh, I think the highlight is the, the Ottawa bootleggers that uh, those uh, th- three seasons at, uh, 
we played were remarkable. Met some uh, really good people, talented people, uh, some really good coaches, and it was it was just a good time. The stuff that happened on the field, off the field, you can't even write that stuff. And sure. well, uh, Warner Miles, uh, uh, captains and uh, linemen who also played uh, in the CFL, actually wrote a book on it. So it's there's a lot of interesting stories uh, with off field and on field stories that uh, we didn't really he didn't really put names to but just told the story so it was uh, it was a lot of fun and um uh once that career was over because uh, uh, that, that's when i applied to the fire department at the i think it was 1990 i applied for the job and i got on the job so i stopped playing the bootleggers because i don't know how it was you know if i got hurt would they fire me so i was young too so uh that was the end of football there for me and I uh, got on the job. And when I was on the job, I was um, one of my platoon chiefs was uh, Bob Butler, okay. who, uh, yeah, so was a, who was a referee. And he asked me, uh, you know, to join the uh, local referees association because of my love and passion for football. And I think he just wanted to boss me around uh, at work and uh, on the football field. So, uh, yeah, and I've been refereeing since uh, 1992. Um, I, I took, a, you know, some time off, uh, to, you know, to raise my kids and then, uh, you know, joined back, uh, refereeing and, uh, I started coaching in the Canada Knights organization. I believe it was maybe 10 years ago. Uh, again, started at the, the, uh, mosquito level as an assistant and worked my way through all the way up to, uh, uh, Bantam, and I was the head coach for the uh, Bantam Knights, and for the past three years moved up to uh, be the head coach for the uh, uh, West Ottawa Knights because they changed the name. Um, and we uh, were fortunate fortunate enough to win two uh, A Cup championships and won the uh, interprovincial, which was well, the pretty- first. What I want to do is I want to touch on some of the uh, – I want to specifically touch on your time with the Knights as well in a bit, and I don't mean to – Okay, yep. No, no. What I kind of want to do is just before it's kind of out of our out of our minds, I wanted to touch a little on on Barry Hawley because it's somebody that uh, – I mean, it's it's one of those names from the past. A lot of people of a certain era are familiar with uh, with Barry Hawley. Obviously, we have the Barry Hawley Memorial Field. Yeah. Uh, now, my question is, is, having been lucky enough yourself to, to play for one of the Nakafa legends, I guess you could say, what are some of the, the memories or takeaways you take from, or do you have any particular memory that stands out with uh, uh, He was just, like, he's the typical, uh, like, like he, be, he belonged in a movie. Like, he was just so animated and funny tough uh father figure friend coach uh he just looked after his players like a family like um i'm just trying to think of things that stuck out like um well if you don't like the story you could always edit it out later but uh there was this one play when we were playing against the trojans and it was called uh i can't remember the name of the the call was but uh you know how coaches line Mm -hmm. up on the sidelines or standing on the sideline and this play was a, a sweep to that side, and the running back was just to take out the coach. Like it was, <laughs> you know, it was a, 
Anyways, maybe I shouldn't have said that story, but, uh, you know, they can't really go after him now, can they? But, uh, yeah, there was one or two plays, uh, you know, they would make the sweep and, uh, you know, how the sweep goes wide and it was to clean out the bench. So it was, yeah, some really strange old school football. And uh, and that's what the type of football was like uh, back then, especially at that level in Midget because they had uh, the Toronto teams in and it was uh, road trips and, uh, you know, for, uh, I think, what are the ages there, 17, 18 you know, getting on a bus and, uh, you know, spending a weekend in Durham or Toronto or uh, Burlington, uh, you know, checking in the hotels and, you know, playing uh, football actually in the hallways and in the, you know, the uh, the rooms. So it was, uh, it was definitely uh, good memories. And that's the whole thing about coaching kids. It's not, yes, it's about football, but it's the little memories that, that you make. And, and I tell my kids, or my players, um, you know, look to the right of you and look to the left of you. These people are you, your friends for life. Maybe when football's over, you're not buddy buddy, but you'll run into each other at Home Depot or something, and things will just click. You'll talk about stories and memories, and you don't even know if you won that game or won that season. It's not important. I mean, at the time, it's important to win games, but it's um, it's all about the players, not the coaches or the parents. It's it's the kids playing. And I just wanted to, uh, uh, you know, I'll never come close, but I just want to be that Barry Holly type of coach where he's, you know, he put the players first and, and uh, you know, not the game and, uh, and the score. So well, it's funny you say it that way, Jimmy, because I mean, and, and, and I can appreciate that and I applaud that. I know myself, there's a particular, I've said it before here, and it was uh, Coach Steve Howlett for myself. And, and there seems to be a common thread with a lot of, uh, ex-players that get into coaching is that memory of the one or two coaches that uh, you know really were above and beyond and I mean I think that's uh, a message lost at all levels in terms of it's it's it doesn't matter whether it's university or whether it's 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 tight um, it's about the players and I think unfortunately that message goes uh, sometimes falls by the wayside so I really appreciate you kind of uh, bringing it up and reinforcing it and it's part of the reason we're here so I uh, couldn't agree with you more my friend on that now you kind of, you, you left the um, and I, kind of, I, I love that you played for the um, for the Dolphins like you said that's dating both of us and going back a bit were you an old lineman your entire career uh, no uh, my first couple of years I was a um, offensive lineman and then I, when I was into, I uh, believe, uh, Pee, uh, Pee, I was still a little but when I started moving into uh, uh, Pee Wee and Bantam, I think one year I was running back and tight. I mean, they were just not taking advantage of my size, but, you know, in that level, just give the big kid the ball, right? So uh, so I played uh, running back, tight end, uh, but most of my career I was a uh, defensive end and, uh, and linebacker. So it all depends on the, you know, the skill level of whatever team I'm playing. Uh, Cause I was, I shouldn't say unfortunate, but I was always unfortunate. Whatever team I was playing for at that age category, it was so much talent. Cause we had like, you know, uh, Tim McGowan, we had uh, um, Shane uh, Ireland with the bootleggers. And so, you know, of course the only you know, very skilled players, you know, so, uh, which, which you learn a lot. So most of my career, it was uh, basically uh, defense. No, very cool stuff. Now, you 
on, you move on from, I'll call it the, uh, the youth levels. Um, although I mean, midget's still a youth level, but I mean, yeah. young adult right on the cusp. So when you, when you played, when you were playing midget, um, and, and you kind of graduated from that, when you moved on to the Sooners, now this is back for a lot of listeners, just so they understand, this is a, a bit of a different Sooners world at the time. I mean, the Sooners were nationally known they're right part of the CGFL. And uh, at the time it was the little gray cup that they competed for. Um, what was that like the transition going from midget to Sooners at the time? Uh, it was uh, a bit overwhelming as far as how, how it was organized. There were so many levels, you know, uh, equipment manager, uh, a trainer, uh, so many coaches, you know, when you play midget, you may see maybe two or three, four coaches, especially back then. But you go into the Sooners and there's like a staff of nine, ten, receiver coach, quarterback coach, running back coach, you know, every position and and the numbers. You're like, holy crap, how am I going to make this team? Look at all these people, you know. But so, I mean, um, I mean, I wasn't a superstar. I was just, you know, the average player that kind of knew the game. But I always had a weird kind of view on, uh, you know, on the game. And, and I think that's why I went into refereeing and coaching later. But um, you know, found a place uh, on the on the on the D line with the Sooners, uh, not as a starter, because uh, they're always rotating uh, the D line to keep them fresh. And I played special teams, and you go bananas on a special team, and you give it, you know, a thousand percent and enjoy the game. So, but it was uh, it was very well organized. Like the Sooners was, uh, you know, just the, the you know the gear, the the equipment, and uh, you know the road trips and uh and then when you get in the playoffs or you know travel across the country so it was uh it's quite the eye opener and, and uh, again a uh, great experience and uh, uh some good memories oh, it was an incredible organization back in the day um can't stress enough how um for those of a certain age i mean the sooners i remember being uh you know, a young guy before I got the opportunity to play for them and, and you would hear news, they'd be, heck, I remember uh, a couple of times the, the games would be broadcast on CFRA mm-hmm. if they were going to the Great Cup. I think they, one time it was on even local access TV when they're playing the Richmond Raiders. So, I mean, a lot of, a lot of that. Now, you're done with the Sooners. And I mean, timing's everything in life. And and you, in this case, I think your, your timing was good. You finish up with the Sooners and then boom, all of a sudden there's a new, uh, um, a new team on the block, if you will, and one that was generating a lot of attention. And this is the one I want to kind of uh, talk a little bit about because a lot of the, the listeners might not uh, be familiar, if, again, if they're not of a certain age, be familiar with the Ottawa bootleggers and what it actually meant to the city. So how did you get involved with the bootleggers? Like, wh- where did that start from? Uh, it was just, like, again, the same group of uh, players that I followed throughout, uh, my, you know, my career were moving up to the bootleggers. And I still had, I think, uh, a year left uh, with the Sooners. But again, all my 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 friends and my buddies are all go playing for the bootleggers. I remember trying out, and I remember you know Mike White, uh, Coach White, you know, coming up to me and said, "Well, Jimmy, you got another year Sooners, and you know I'm not gonna, you know, I'm going to be honest here. You're not going to see much of the field here, you know, with all these." I said, "Hey, I'll, you know, I'm special teams and being a backup, uh, you know, I'm not uh, going to fool myself." And he was okay with that, and I was okay with that, and practiced uh we practiced a lot too back then i think it was almost like four times a week so it took a lot of time and and effort but i was on board and uh the, the rest was history like i said just following the there's there was a lot of, of believe it or not gloucester dukes and uh, and south gloucester dolphins uh you know on that bootlegger team so it's 
it's hard not to, you know, break up the family or, or, or the groups of players that you've been playing with. And uh, it was quite the experience with the, just, you know, American rules, uh, the only Canadian team. We were kind of like the laughing stock well, until they played us. And uh, we, were, we were just vicious, like on the field, like the, the, the bootlegger defense was just search and destroy. Like it was crazy. And then, all the themes for, for, for the games, we made it fun for the fans. Uh, you know, our mascot is a Grim Reaper. Like it, it was, like I said, it was, I'm glad I was part of that group. No, so you, you kind of, uh, you know, it, it started as an idea and kind of took off from there. And like you said, um, to a lot of American teams might have been the, the laughing stock until they played you. What was that first game like and, and where was it? Uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that because uh, I was going to, Zoom in on that as well. So our first game was at Lounsdown. It was against, uh, I think it was Hudson. Yeah, Hudson Vikings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was, uh, yeah. And I think it was June or July, 1988-ish. And uh, it was at Lounsdown. And they heard that we were, like, you know, black, like, like, like the Raiders. So they pull in on the bus and they see the Rough Riders practicing in their black jerseys. So the looks on their face, their jaws are dropping going, holy crap, is this the team? You know, which was awesome. And then once they found out that it was the professional team, then, you know, then they're, they have, you know, the swag. Oh yeah. We're, we're going to kick their ass and this and that. So uh, the coach came out and met uh, Mike White just to introduce himself and talked. And, and I remember uh, the story was uh, the Hudson uh, head coach said to Mike, so uh, is your first year, can, you know, that's good. Uh, how many American players do you have in your team? And Mike kind of laughs and says, well, we don't have any Americans. We're all Canadian. And he says, well, how do you expect to be competitive? And Mike goes, oh, okay, yeah. Nice talking to you, coach. <laughs> so he comes and tells us this. Um, so I think in the third quarter, we're up something like, 72 nothing, pounding the crap out of these guys and they want to throw in the towel and uh, quit the game early and we're like nope sorry we're going to finish the game so it was in a it was a very exciting uh, first game so it uh that's no, it set the for the, uh, yep. for the rest of the Lagers run because I mean I can't I don't remember and you you'll be better to take us through the timeline but was it year one that you guys competed right away for uh for the uh, I think it was, uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. 88. We had, uh, two rounds of, uh, playoffs and the actual, uh, championship. And for people that don't, yeah. and, and you can attest to this. I mean, I remember, and, and in the city at the time, there was almost as big a buzz. I mean, the Rough Riders were in the midst of, uh, you know, um, at the time, I think uh, Sports Illustrated had them ranked as one of the worst franchises in, in North America or if it was in, around that period that they that made that list or, or made the bottom of that list or the top, however you want to look at it. Um, and, and the bootleggers were really gaining some momentum um, in terms of just the fan base and the noise around town. Like, it's, it's if you weren't a part of it, you don't really get it. I mean, there's been... There's been various teams that have kind of played in, in semi-pro leagues or in senior leagues, but but nothing like the bootleggers. Can you talk about the experience as a player and, and hearing that buzz around town or the first time you realize, hey, wait a minute, um, there's more people than just my friends and family that know what's going on here. Oh, for sure. But uh, let me make a quick correction. The first year we went to the uh, Empire Football League Championship, which is just the 
state of New York. It was the following year in 1989, we went to the uh, uh, championship game. So just wanted to <clears throat> correct that. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Being a player and, and with the fans, because, you know, I mean, if you think of it, we're, we're all local. Everyone on the bootleggers are all from Ottawa. So if you have a roster of 40, 45, just think about it. That one person has family and friends of maybe 50 or 100. So you times that by 45. So you have all your friends and family and regular fans. But yeah, the the buzz of, you know, looking up at the crowd behind your bench and we had like 8,600 people at a, at a football game. It's, it's, I don't know what words to use. It, it was awesome. It was just, it just felt really great. Uh, you know, playing, yeah, playing in front of your fans, uh, that many fans is, uh, you know, it's not like uh, the peewee days where you just have your mom and dad in the stands, right? I know, and I remember it was quite the buzz around the town. And I mean, at one point, like I said, as far as media coverage, you guys were probably getting as much and, and quite frankly, maybe deservedly so as, as the Rough Riders were getting at the time. So it was a really interesting time. And uh, it's kind of cool to be able to talk to somebody that not only uh, remembers it, but lived it firsthand. Now, going away, taking away, before you leave the bootleggers or looking back at that time, um, was there any maybe one or two moments that kind of stuck out, like you, your, your kind of memories of the bootleggers? Um, yeah, there's quite a few stories. Um, I believe one year, was it the first year or second year, we were in Johnstown, New York, and uh, not a very nice place to be, and we were just pounding the crap out of them. And it's no better feeling than, you know, going down south and, beating them at their own game with their own rules. And I remember one player was on a special teams. Um, I'm not going to mention any names, but he just drops this guy on a, on a, on a punt return or kick return. And this Johnstown uh, player gets up and he goes, Hey, number 52, uh, nice hit, nice hit. Huh? You know what I'm going to do after the game? I'm going to go in my car. I'm going to get my gun out of my glove box and I'm going to shoot you. And then this player goes, Haha, very funny. And then this player probably think, Maybe this guy's serious. So anyways, it was uh, like, that's one of many weird stories. And I think the, 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 the yeah, is I think the championship game in uh, 1989, I think was, um, was, was probably uh, my best memory because, you know, here we are, you know, this lone team made up of Canadian players uh, playing for the uh, national championship uh, game against uh, Racine Raiders. The strange thing about the Raiders is that they're the Raiders and they wore the Raiders uh, away colors in white. And we as bootleggers, I mean, we were the bootleggers, but we had the Raiders black home. So it was almost like we were playing ourselves. It was a very tight, close game. It was in the middle of the blizzard. I borrowed my dad's two uh, salamanders for the uh, sidelines. It was just so, so, so cold. And it was such a close game. I mean, we lost that game, I think, by four or five points of, uh, you know, their slot back coming across the middle in the snow, caught the ball and, you know, and and uh, lost the game. But it was, uh, I think that was the highlight was the uh, championship uh, championship game, you know, saying that, hey, us Canadians are good so enough. And sorry about that, Jimmy. Sorry. Um, a lot of people don't know what some of these clubs meant to the uh, to the smaller American towns. Like, I mean, the Raiders are a perfect example. I mean, just to give you an idea of um, they were one of the first uh, like they were they go back to 1953 
and um, and they've been around since then, and there's played numerous leagues and and uh, been in and around. So I mean, it's a league that, especially stateside, goes back rather deep. So I mean, it's kind of cool that a Ottawa for a brief period was part of it, and b more more importantly, it's kind of neat that we get to chat with you, who uh, kind of experienced the, uh, the well, didn't kind of experienced it firsthand. Very cool stuff. Now you're done playing the bootleggers, and I want to touch on the. Um, I do want to touch on your career, um, your chosen career. But before we jump into that, um, I want to talk a little bit about the refing portion. Um, most players, and I mean right off the bat, they look at it and they look at the refs as say, uh, you know, that kind of necessary evil, or that's the guy. I, and I, patient thinks we know it's not fact, but that 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 oh, that's the guy against me, and that's you know the kind of mentality when you're younger. And then a lot of ex-players move on to uh, to refing and, and realize that, you know, this kind of a necessity to keep this thing going. So my question to you is, is what kind of, uh, did you have any hesitation when you were first uh, asked to be a ref? Um, no, not at all, because I love the game. And uh, it'd be interesting at uh, looking at the game from the outside in rather than the inside out. So, uh, I mean, I did struggle because... When you play the umpire position, well, they changed it now, but the umpire position and and refereeing is basically like right near the linebackers. And your natural instinct when you see a hole open up is that you want to fill it, right? But as a referee, you you (laughs) don't. So there was a the first the first few games or the first year I had to struggle with. Okay, you're not a football player because it's natural instinct. You see a hole and you want to fill the gap. So now you got to get out of the way. So, uh, no, no, I really, uh, no, I, there was no hesitation at all. I just, like I said, I love the game and now I'm seeing the game from, from the, uh, the other side. And I was always, uh, uh, not a stickler for rules, but I, I just, I wanted to know why the rules, uh, exist, uh, you know, look up the rules. Um, and then you gain that, 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 that knowledge as a coach and I'm not doing a Bill Belichick, but I know the rules so well. I'm not cheating, but I'm manipulating the rules. So that's what a coach wants to do. You want to take the game and the rules and and play them the best way you can. So I was always coming up with different scenarios. Can we do this play? Can we do that? Not trick plays, but certain, well, yeah, but Jimmy, nobody does that, you know? So there's a lot of plays where, you know, I, I, I developed that were within the rules, but referees and players never seen them before. And there were some times where I'd have to check with the referees before the game as a, as a midget coach, is this play legal? Oh, well, yeah, it is, but I've never seen that before. So yeah, I spent a lot of time uh, with game film and going through the, the rule books and plays and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, the, the refereeing definitely helped, uh, helped me as a, as a coach and as a referee too. Oh, and interested you right away, I guess. Well, you, you kind of answered the question when you were talking about, uh, you know, your instincts as a linebacker and having to suppress them when when uh, when being an official, particularly from the umpire spot. Um, what were some of the other, I don't want to say transitions you had to make because it's so different, but what were some of the uh, the major differences you also witnessed? Okay, now seeing the uh, seeing the game unfold from that from that referee or from the official's position versus the player's position? Um, I, I come to realize that uh, this is no disrespect to any coaches or players out there, but I really realized that uh, a lot of coaching, coaches and players don't really know the rules. You know, and uh, that's the first thing I noticed in the few the, the few years of refereeing is the, the you know the coaches screaming and yelling, "Come on, ref!" And I'm like, "Well, dude, that's you don't know the rules. You don't understand that, that that's a penalty. You can't that 
players ineligible. How can he be ineligible? He's a tight end. Yeah, but he's he's up at the line, you know. So the and the list goes on. So I, I found out that uh, a lot of players and coaches don't don't necessarily know the rules of the game. And you got to keep your your cool. And uh, yeah. just because a coach is screaming and yelling at you doesn't mean you scream and yell back at them. And you just got to compose yourself and you know talk to them after the game. And so it's uh, got to build some bridges. No, and it's funny. It's it, it's funny that you say about the uh, the knowledge of the the rules of the game and the intricacies because it's amazing. Like you said, just how many. I mean, they they know the the, and this isn't meant as a slight or a shot or an insult. I mean, um, I, I think it applies to a lot of people. But I mean, how many just actually don't know the intricacies of the rules or don't know specific rules? And I've heard people go on, or I've seen it over where they're throwing a fit and, and, and you're just kind of standing back saying, uh, you know, you might want to go review this before yeah. you, you continue in, in fit mode. So kind of neat that you say that now you kind of evolve into um, to, 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 well, you said you took the break from refing and then you ended up going into coaching. What precipitated the, the uh, move from refereeing to coaching? Um, I, I think it's, it was because of the, uh, the, uh, the lack of knowledge of the game and the rules that, you know, I saw these coaching uh, coaches, you know, yelling and screaming at kids and at refs. And I'm like, you know, that, that that's not right. These are kids. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, you know, you don't want to be a pushover coach, but I mean, these are young players. You don't scream and yell at them. I mean, that's, you know, it's not, uh, can't remember that game, that football movie or showdown in the States there, uh, Friday night tykes or whatever it is there, but, uh, you know, and, uh, and I just, uh, had, uh, you know, ideas and, and, and plays that I wanted to see uh, played on the field. And I, and I've never seen them, you know, uh, done my way or whatever. So uh, I know it's, uh, you got to start at the bottom and work your way up. And that's what I did. Just started as a special team coach and then uh defense alignment coach. And then, you know, worked my way up as a head coach. And once, once I was the head coach, I uh, started designing plays and, uh, and uh, installed them and used them and uh, and they worked and the the, the players uh, you know excelled. I mean, because I always just you know I, I didn't have a system and then force it upon the players. I always waited to see what kind of talent I had and I built my scheme and my system around the talent. And that's the only way it's going to work. You can't force a system onto certain players that don't have that skill set or or football IQ. So you got to see who you have first. And I was fortunate. For the past two years, I had uh, every single player in every position what was a stud, you know, and um, and these plays worked. And uh, I mean, I designed, you know, every single offensive play except for maybe two or three, um, which I figured wasn't bad for uh, you know a washed up uh, linebacker. So <laughs> <laughs> no, and I, I like that you. Uh couple of things I like you said is particularly at the younger levels I mean it's it's important to remember the game's about the kids and it's about uh you know enhancing enhancing their knowledge growing their knowledge but in particular like helping growing their passion because we know what it meant to us and I mean in a lot of cases um yeah as you get older you have systems you have a chance to recruit for them at that say the university or the junior levels but that's important to retain for for, for player retention to actually have them doing something that fits into their skill set so I like that you do that and then the other point I kind of take away which I find is funny because myself I fall into it and at least two other people I've talked to 
it was actually, uh, I don't want to call it a negative experience, but a, the culmination of a bunch of negative experience where you're kind of watching, uh, you know, watching coaches that perhaps aren't in it for the right reasons or are in it for their own motivation, whatever that may be. And then you have the worst type where it's exactly that, where it's the fire and brimstone in its 1950s. So, I mean, um, that's all kind of uh, – it's funny how many of these of the coaches I talked to, like yourself, that the, the beginning kind of was uh, is a similar – stuff there now you've gone on and we'll talk a little bit about your uh your canada knights i gotta give you credit i mean uh you i believe it was 2000 was it 2017 2019 you were the catholic coaches um year. just just the one year the, the first year we won the championship uh yeah, yeah okay cool what has that experience been like now kind of getting into your niche having that you know having coached for a while and then you're taking over a club like you said with some with some good talent not just having the talent there but seeing that talent come to fruition and culminating in a championship what's that like as a as a coach opposed to a player to you know it's a it's a, a great feeling because the the year previous to that we had a season of zero and eight with like uh only well i could say it now we only had 17 players you know you need 20 uh, you know, to play, you need a, a platoon of 20 and we only had 17 players. So I would dress hurt players. Don't get me wrong. They never stepped on the field, but the referees had to see them dress. So I had to dress guys who had broken ankles or whatever, just to play. And the kid says, well, coach, well, what's going on? Are we going to fold? And I'm like, no, we're not going to fold. Yeah. But yeah, I said, who cares if we're going to lose? Let's just have some fun. So the kids kind of, that kind of empowered them a little bit to, you know, to, to come out and play. So when we won the, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the championship, the, the following year, you know, undefeated right through uh, to, to the A Cup was great. And it wasn't until I took the cup home, I kind of turned it around and I looked at the year that uh, I wanted as a, as a player in 1984, I think, with the Dukes. You know, there's the Dukes name and, and, and the year. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool winning the cup as a player. And then, you know, winning it uh, as a head coach. And, and I told my players, I said, look, en enjoy the moment. Don't be nervous. Go out there and have fun. You lose, you lose. We lose as a team. If we win, it's great. But I said, just uh, enjoy yourself because this doesn't happen very often. And I just pointed to my uh, coaching staff of nine, a lot of, you know, university players. Um, uh, uh, yeah, they're not college, no college up here. But they're, And I said, you know, none of them have a championship or want a championship. So it only comes around, you know, once in a while. So, so enjoy the ride. And we got to ride that wave for two years. So it's. That's very cool stuff. Now to shift gears a little bit, Jimmy, because I always found it fascinating and you spoke of it um, just in the beginning. Um, if you give us a little background, what now I know myself you, as, as, a, as a fireman with the Ottawa fire yep. service, you kind of jumped in very young age was that always a lifelong passion um yeah it was it, it, it's funny because it was um almost the, the, the i'm gonna try to make this quick uh, almost the same time when i was uh, playing football and catching the bus in blossom park there was a um a small grass fire that happened on kingsdale or queensdale i remember being a little kid going there and you know seeing the you know the firemen or the firefighters show up with the trucks and stuff. And, you know, I got, you know, really close to it. And um, I remember one firefighter coming up to me, Hey kid, uh, you want us to help us out now? 
you know, what, what am I going to do? And he says, well, if you walk around like the burnt stuff that's already out, if you see a little flames, just stomp it with your foot and uh, whatever. So I'm like, oh, my God, this is great. This is, look at these guys are cool. These guys are like Superman, you know. And then there was another fire a few weeks later right by my bus stop where it was a printing shop or whatever. And, you know, back then once buildings were kind of burnt out, they weren't fenced off. So I kind of walked in there and walked around and I saw the devastation that, that, that fire does to uh, companies and, and people's homes. And it kind of hit me there, there too, that, you know, maybe I should be a firefighter to fight fires and maybe, you know, someday prevent them. And lo and behold, uh, geez, I don't want to age myself. Was that, 40 years ago or, or, or whatever. And then, you know, now I'm, now I'm on the job. Oh, very cool stuff. Now, uh, yeah. do you find, and a lot of people that tie in their youth sports or some of their youth experiences, do you find any of the, um, I guess, how did, how did playing in the calf of football and you're, you're growing up in the system or whatever and, and kind of playing that sport, did you find that that had any correlation in prepping you for your career as a firefighter? Oh, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, uh, team sports and uh, in the in the fire department go hand in hand. It, it's a team effort. Not one guy could or one person run into a fire and put it out. You you need a team. Uh, yeah, you got some uh, superstars that are on the the nozzle, but uh, you got uh, pump operators uh, out on the street. Uh, you know, not kicking down doors and saving babies. So it's a it's a team. And and I told my players this too. I said football. And possibly um, rugby is the only true team sports left. I mean, hockey, it's soccer. You could score from coast to coast. In football, that one running back or that one quarterback can't run from one end of the field to the other by himself. So, um, yeah, for sure it goes hand in hand. Uh, uh, football and in CAF and my experience and being part of the uh, fire department. Uh, yeah, it's, it's all about working as a team. It has nothing to do with you. It's uh, it's 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 a team effort all the time. And now, as somebody who's been uh, had uh, a stellar career with the fire department, and also has done it for for has been there for for several years, we'll try not to age ourselves any more than we have. But has done it for a few years. Do you have any uh, what what advice would you give to any uh, young women or young men out there that uh, are contemplating that career? It's uh, it's not a job for everyone. So. Um, uh, if that's what you want to do, just don't give up. It's perseverance. I mean, keep applying, keep trying. You don't get in the first or second time. Keep trying. There, there there's, there's people out there that have uh, tried and applied for like five, six, seven years before they, before they get on, and it's a perseverance. So if you apply the first or second time, and you just said, uh, "Forget it," then obviously. It's not what you want to do. So uh, if you want to do something, and, and I don't want to sound cliche, if, if you want to do something or you have a dream, just go after it. And uh, if it was meant to be, it'll happen. All right, cool. And again, for the yeah. same group, is there any particular path you recommend they follow? Or um, it's, uh, I get this a lot from, from young recruits. Uh, you know, you got these uh, fire courses at colleges and in Texas and stuff like that. Yeah, they help, but uh, it's not going to guarantee you the job. So, so what I tell young people is, uh, you know, get a good education. Um, and I just tell them pick up a trade because trades are are impossible to hire trades because uh, no one's doing these trades. So have a trade, um, and then start applying at a young age in your twenties. And uh, and I tell them don't give up until you're. 32, 35 years old. And they kind of look at me, what are you, well, it's a long time. And I'm like, once you're on here, 
it's a beautiful job. It's a job for life, you know? So at least you have something to fall back on. If, 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 you know, if you can't get in, you have a trade in you and you have a job, as long as you're got a half decent job, that's putting money in your jeans, uh, perseverance. I mean, it doesn't, I mean, it does help taking these, uh, these, these other courses, uh, South of the border and here at Algonquin and stuff, but, uh, again, it's a it's a lot of money, and it doesn't really uh, guarantee you uh, the job. But I mean, it does it does help. Well, we got you, got you. One doesn't necessarily lead right to the other, but it's not a bad idea. Uh, and again, yeah, I already know the answer to this, and this is somewhat cliche. But uh, what what what's and I don't want to say one the the most, but what is some of the more more rewarding things about the the job that as a firefighter? Um, I think it's because. Come November, I'll have 30 years on. So um, with Ottawa, but in the fire service, I've had it about 33 because I was a volunteer. Um, I've seen all aspects of the job. Uh, I've been a, f- a frontline firefighter for 20 years in the past 10 years in the prevention side for preventing fires. And I'm also a, a, a division chief in charge of fire investigators. So I've seen all aspects of the job. And I think the most rewarding thing is... Um, being in the uh, the prevention bureau, um, you go home knowing you accomplished something. Maybe uh, you, someone, you know, you had a complaint of uh, of a tenant not having a working smoke alarm. Well, that's dangerous. So yeah, you rushed out there and you installed a smoke alarm, or had the owner install a smoke alarm, or someone had a question about fire safety or, or a family escape plan and stuff like that. And you you know you you give them that advice, or you you know you go and investigate the origin uh, and cause of the fire so you have uh, some data of what's the most important uh, causes to address and it's a sense of uh, accomplishment i mean uh, you could save a life by installing a smoke alarm rather than kicking down a door and rescuing someone so it's uh, the, the most rewarding part of my job i think is what i'm doing now i think it's the best gig on the job is uh, fire investigation and uh, and preventing fires from happening in the first place Cool. You know what they say. It's one of the old expressions, but it's true. Uh, an ounce of prevention's worth a pound of cure. So that sounds exactly what you do, the kind of the philosophy yep. that's put in place. Well, before I let you go, Jimmy, I mean, uh, I'd be kind of remiss if I didn't bring up the uh, man of, of many hats yourself if I brought up the final one. And uh, to local football fans, they might recognize you as the, the infamous or somewhat famous zipper face who's now uh, <laughs> you know, has, has made it uh, on a national level as well as a city level. Um, yeah, yeah, I forgot about zipper face. Yeah, he's, he hasn't donned that zipper in a, in a long time there. I hope it still sticks. I hope it still sticks to my face. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we a hiatus last year. How, how did that come to fruition, my friend? Um, I have... No, no secret. I love football. And when I heard we we're getting a professional team, the first game, I just wanted to, you know, uh, you know, 50 year old kid, uh, man acting like a kid, paint yourself like a college student. So uh, I was just Googling uh, uh, images of, uh, you know, a super fan or whatever. So, of course, the Raiders a guy showed up with the spiky shoulder pads and the black and silver. And then right beside it was this kind of like Halloween uh, face of a, of a zipper face painted where underneath was red and the uh, the outside part was just a normal flesh person. I'm like, you know, that would look cool. But if I painted my face uh, red and black, like the red blacks colors, and then have, you know, a zipper on my face, it'll look like I'm a, like some crazy rabid fan unzippering himself and put the toque on and 
some blue contacts in my eyes and the rest is history. And, uh, and, and it's funny because my seats are uh, field level on the uh, north side and I'm only about four yards from the sideline. So when the line of scrimmage is uh, parallel or perpendicular to, to my seat, I'm tripping these, uh, these DBs and these cornerbacks. And once they look up and see me and they see my face, it gets in their head. And that's, and, uh, you know, it's just, like I said, a kid in the candy store, you know, painted face, you know, chirping the players, getting in their head. And uh, and they could hear me because I, you know, I've talked to, you know, players and, you know, Henry Burris and Henry saying, oh, Jimmy, don't you worry. I'm in the huddle and I could hear you. So it's it, it's good. It's awesome. That's no, great stuff. And, uh, yeah. Now, when was that moment that you kind of went? Because I remember turning on, I think it was right before the before their appearance in the Grey Cup one year, and you turn on the national news, and, and there you are. When when was that moment that you kind of realized, okay, this was just for my own fun or my, my group of buddies and getting back? And then all of a sudden, you're like, well, wait a minute. People uh, people know who this, this character is. Yeah, um, I think it was um... – I was walking down the street, like going to the game. Hey, I know that guy. You're that guy on TV uh, with on the games and stuff. And that's when it, you know, that that, that that's when it clicked. And uh, and then you know, I, I go down a little bit early uh, to the games, and um, you know, you think kids would be terrified of the zipper face, but it's the opposite. The, you know, there's something weird about it. The kids like it, and uh, you know, and they want to take a you know a picture with you. And then uh, it was a few years ago I created these. Um, small little temporary tattoos of a zipper face as a, as a logo, as a cartoon character. And I hired this uh, illustrator to do a, a zipper face uh, comic strip. That's only three pages uh, zipper face uh, handling uh, the gray cup and being the driver and stuff like that, which is, you know, all true. So it's uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's been a good ride and it's, it's all for the love of football it has nothing to do with, me or zipper face because uh, with the red plaques if they ever want to any type of promotion or whatever they want me to do and i said yeah as long as it's to promote football or getting butts in the seats i'm all over it it's all it's all about football we gotta especially now with this xfl uh, sniffing around and stuff we uh you know we don't want to lose this game it, it means a lot to, to me and millions others uh, across the country uh, our canadian uh, game needs to pr- be protected it's not the same game as the NFL. They're, I mean, I know it's football, but they're two separate games, and you can never compare them. You just got to respect them as two different games. No, you know what, buddy? That was very, very well put. I think that's a, a lot of times it's lost, and there's always people want to compare, compare the rules. Well, it'd be better if they did this. More fans would see this. More, but like you said, there's still that that base, that true uh, base of Canadian football fans. And it doesn't mean that you're anti-American league rules. You're anti-Canadian rules. It just means that you're a football fan that sees the individual uh, rule sets and leagues for for uh, the the beauty that they bring to the table. Well, Jimmy, I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, sitting down with us today. I, uh, it was great to chat. It was great to hear some of the stories. And it was great to take a walk down memory lane. Really appreciate your time today, Jimmy. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, th- I'm much appreciated. And uh, thanks for asking me. Hey, not a problem. And, and, and like I said, hopefully, uh, you know, we get all this pandemic stuff behind us and we see uh, Jimmy Fada prowling the sidelines for the uh, West Ottawa. 
year. So, Jimmy, once again, I'd like to thank you for jumping on, and I'd like to thank everybody out there for uh, giving it a listen on this edition of the NACAFA 65 Years of Our Huddle Includes Everyone podcast. We will see you on the next podcast.